The current of change that's still sweeping through the Middle East had its humble beginnings in the subregion that this panel will address, uh, Arab North Africa. The experiences of countries on the southern shores of the Mediterranean after, uh, offer competing visions of the course that change may take in the broader region. In Tunisia, we find an elected coalition government faced with security challenges and debates over fundamental constitutional principles, while economic struggles that helped motivate original calls for change continue. In Libya, triumph and tragedy have marked a transition that has successfully produced Libya's first elected government in nearly 50 years, but yet Libya remains haunted by the ghosts of the Qaddafi era, its divisive legacy, and its new government has a long way to go to build its own capacities and assert national leadership. Egyptians have taken the first steps beyond the political gamesmanship that characterized their early transition period. But President Morsi and his allies find themselves grappling with the responsibilities of elected power and balancing competing domestic and international demands. In Algeria, we see the durability of broadly-based forms of authoritarian rule, but looming leadership transitions and persistent economic challenges may place obstacles on the horizon. And lastly, in Morocco, we see a potential model of negotiated change, with many questions still outstanding about the limits of royal power <clears throat> and the durability of compromise with elected individuals. What do these different case studies teach us about the possibilities of lasting change in the region? How has each shaped the other? And how should policymakers respond to unique challenges each presents? Indeed, North Africa offers us a rich menu of interesting topics and questions to explore. To help us do that, we are joined by the impressive panel of experts and practitioners that you see before you, and they're all eager to share their experiences and insight. Their bios are available to you, uh, so I will keep introductions to a minimum. In general, uh, we'll proceed, uh, I think, um, east to west, so uh, across North Africa, uh, beginning with Egypt. Uh, I've asked our speakers to limit their remarks to roughly seven minutes in order to reserve plenty of time for your questions and answers. Dr. Anthony and the organizers, have, as always, have provided us with a series of thought-provoking questions. Um, and as with previous panels, question cards will be available to you. So first, uh, I'd like to call on uh, Mr. Kareem Hagag, uh, who is a visiting professor uh, at the NISA Center at NDU. Uh, and served as a career Egyptian diplomat uh, with direct experience uh, in Egypt's diplomacy towards Middle East regional security, arms control, and nonproliferation issues. He's also a veteran of the Egyptian Information and Political Military Affairs Office here in Washington, so he offers unique insight into the delicate relationship Egypt's new leaders find themselves uh, maneuvering in. Mr. Haggad, thank you. Um, thank you, and uh, I'd like to thank the Council for this opportunity. It's a pleasure to be uh, here with you today. Um, I'd like to focus my remarks on foreign policy, uh, particularly the challenges facing the new Egyptian government in, in the foreign policy and regional security realm. But I'd like to set the context by talking a little bit about uh, domestic policy. And here, let me just start out by what seems to be a paradoxical situation uh, when assessing Egypt's domestic landscape. Because on the one hand, on the level of politics, we have truly momentous change uh, in Egypt. However, on the level of policy, I would argue that we have much more continuity than change. On the level of politics, the election of President Mohamed Morsi was truly a landmark event uh, in Egypt's political history. He was the first civilian elected to uh, the office of the presidency in Egypt. He is also the first Islamist to be elected as head of state in any Arab country in free and fair elections. And the, the Islamist movement in question, of course, is the Muslim Brotherhood by far the largest and most well-established Islamist movement in the world of Sunni political Islam. So truly momentous change uh, on the level of politics. However, I would argue on the level of policy, we have much more durability, much more consistency. And the reasons for that are numerous, and I don't want to get too much into that. We can, of course, discuss this uh, in, in the Q&A session. But just to point out that this uh, is, is rooted in a number of factors. First of all, the resiliency of Egypt's institutions, uh, the military, the national security bureaucracy, 
the judiciary, the media, have all remained to a certain level very cohesive throughout what has been a very turbulent transition. Now, all of these, of course, have afforded Egypt really a measure of stability that's been lacking in some of the other countries that have undergone transition. We've heard, of course, about Syria. We will hear in this panel about Libya, Bahrain. All of these have went through very turbulent uh, domestic uh, uh, transitions. But I think the resiliency of Egypt's institutions have uh, uh, spared Egypt um, much of that. We still are, of course, very much in a period of political transition. Despite the uh, election of President Morsi, we still have a number of milestones to complete uh, in Egypt's post-revolutionary transition. There is still a new constitution that is being negotiated as we speak. That constitution will be put to a national referendum, followed by uh, parliamentary elections. Now, in all of this, of course, we have seen what has been at times a very polarized uh, or polarizing debate uh, within Egypt's uh, domestic context uh, between both the Islamist and non-Islamist forces, forces affiliated with the old regime, and forces affiliated with the new revolutionary groups that have emerged uh, fr from the revolution. But there is still a recognition that consensus is key. I think there is a recognition that no party can govern by itself. There is a recognition that no coalition of forces can form a supermajority that can govern Egypt in isolation from other political forces. So I think that's a very healthy sign. But again, it, it accounts for the fact that there has been no radical departures when it comes to Egypt's domestic or foreign policy. And it, it attests to what I think is a very healthy sense of political pluralism uh, in, in Egypt. Now, the one area where we see this consistency most clearly is in the realm of foreign policy. We have the fundamentals of Egypt's foreign policy orientation very much unchanged. The strategic partnership with the United States, the Egypt's commitment to the Egyptian-Israeli peace treaty have, have all remained very much uh, intact. Contrary to widespread expectations following the overthrow of the Mubarak regime, there has been no radical shift in Egypt's regional alliances. There has been no resumption of diplomatic ties to Iran. There has been no drastic change in Egypt's policy towards the Hamas government in Gaza or the border regime uh, between uh, the Sinai and the Gaza Strip. There is a recognition, I think, on the part of the government uh, of the need to leverage the network of relationships and alliances that Egypt has formed over the last three decades to deal with what is a very difficult economic situation domestically. And I will talk about that uh, uh, a little bit further on. So we see on the level of foreign policy much more consistency uh, and much more durability uh, than any sense of radical change, as was the expectation following uh, the outbreak uh, of the revolution. Now, that does not mean that there will be no change. And I think what you do see on the part of the new government is a clear determination to reassert Egypt's regional role that was seen to have been diminished under uh, the former regime. We have seen a much more activist uh, foreign policy on the part of this president with numerous successive visits to China, reaching out to Europe, a visit to Iran in the context of the non-aligned movement, uh, reaching out to Africa, uh, given Egypt's interests there, Egypt's water interests with the Nile Basin countries. We have seen a very bold initiative on Syria uh, that we could talk about uh, further. We see a clear signaling to break with the old regime uh, when it comes to the perception of Egypt's subordination of its national security interests to foreign powers. Uh, and this was a very strong perception generated by uh, the revolution itself. In all of this, I think the approach of the new government will be driven by a clear sense of Egyptian national interests rather than any perceived ideological orientation. 
And the one area you see this most clearly is in the Sinai. And it was in the very decisive response by the new government to the crisis precipitated by the attack on Egyptian soldiers in uh, uh, last August that led to the, to, to the killing of 16 Egyptian border guards at the hand of terrorist elements within the Sinai. We've seen in the aftermath of that a very clear, a very decisive response on the part of the government. President Morsi ordering in the military uh, to track down uh, in a very wide-ranging sweep of the border areas between uh, the Sinai and uh, the Gaza Strip and Israel. Very clear action in shutting down the illegal tunnel trade between the Sinai and Gaza. All of these were, were very decisive actions to the point that the Hamas government uh, in, in Gaza vehemently criticized President Morsi, uh, calling him worse than former President Mubarak. Now, in all of this, I think the, the new government will face three key challenges, and I will uh, wrap up uh, very quickly. First of all, there is the challenge of repairing and rethinking uh, new uh, or old alliance relationships. We see this in particular in the African context, uh, given Egypt's national security interests in the Nile Basin region. There will be a, a, a need to rethink Egypt's relationship with the United States. I think both countries recognize the critical stakes in this very key relationship, but I think there is a recognition as well that moving forward, much of the substance of that relationship will have to be revisited in a way uh, that, that takes into account the interests of both sides. Finally, all of this will take time. It will take time for patient diplomacy abroad, and it will also take time to forge political consensus at home. Now, the problem is, of course, we, or Egypt, lives in a region that is prone to crisis, and prone to crisis in a way that can intrude on Egypt's domestic political context in a way that can force very difficult decisions uh, for the government. We see that potentially in Libya, in Lebanon, in Syria, a potential crisis in the Gulf. The one area where it will probably f face an immediate challenge is in Gaza. And we've seen lately the recent round of violence, rockets from the Gaza Strip into southern Israel, a cycle of retaliation and counter-retaliation. Egypt, again, assuming its role in attempting to broker a ceasefire between Hamas and Israel. All of these things can potentially be explosive in a way that forces a very difficult decision on the part of the government. The last point I will make is about the Arab-Israeli context. I think one of the unrecognized developments so far when it comes to the Arab Spring is that the Arab revolutions coincide with what is truly a fundamental transformation in the nature of the Arab-Israeli conflict from a national conflict between Palestinians and Israelis to what seems to be an emerging ethnic conflict between Arabs and Jews. The demise of the two-state solution will pose a fundamental challenge to Egypt's interests and Egypt's stability. And I think if there is one potential challenge that Egypt will face in the foreign policy realm, I think it relates to what will be a very difficult uh, development when it comes to the future of the Arab-Israeli uh, conflict moving forward. Thank you. Let me stop there, and I would be happy to take your questions. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Kareem. We, uh, Kareem's presented us um, with a, a framework to understand Egyptian relations with the United States and the world uh, that stresses maybe a bit more continuity than change. Uh, and reminds us to focus on uh, Egypt's uh, rethinking of its alliances, counsels patience, uh, and warns about maybe bumps in the road ahead on the Arab-Israeli conflict. We move now to, to Libya, uh, very much on, on everyone's minds here in the United States of late. Uh, and uh, who better to present um, perspectives on that country than uh, the Libyan ambassador to the United States, Ambassador Ali Ojali. 
Uh, Ambassador Ojali's decades of diplomatic service around the world uh, and in Libya give him unique insight, uh, not only on Libya's recent political changes, but into the deeper currents, challenges, and opportunities before the Libyan people as they look to their future. Uh, we're pleased to welcome Ambassador Ali Ojali. Uh, good afternoon. Uh, thank you very much, uh, National Council on U.S. Arab relations. Dr. Dr. Anthony, this occasion, it is one of the most uh, favorable here in Washington, D.C. You bring all these scholars and professors and experts and politicians from all over the world. Thank you very much for the invitation. Well, let me start uh, by saying I'm very proud to be here today to talk a little bit about what's happening in Libya and uh, what is our expectation and what are our challenges. Um, I want to start with what happening in Benghazi in September 11, that we lost a great friend, Ambassador Chris Steven. He's uh, not only a friend, he's a tennis partner, and he's a champion, and he's part of the Libya Revolution. We lost him in a very uh, criminal attack against the American consulate in Benghazi. I want to extend my condolence, my, our regret, and our sorry for his family and for the American people. Uh, it is sad that he is not around with us to see the democratic process taking place in Libya. Well, we have, uh, with support of the United States, of the NATO, of the Arab countries, to defeat the Gaddafi regime, which was in Libya for 42 years. But the challenges are still great in front of us. We have security issue. Unfortunately, the government is still not in full control of the Libyan territories. We have a very long borders. We have legal immigrants. We have some terrorists. And we have some group who are having weapons in their hands. How can we control them? How can we uh, bring them under the umbrella of the governments. This is need two things. One is support of our friends who support us during the war. And the second thing, that we have to take these people as much as we can under the umbrella, uh, under the government. We need to train them, the ones who are uh, ready to work for the military or for the Ministry of Interior. And we have to find vacancies. We have to create jobs for them. This is a very long process. It will take time and need patience. But unfortunately, uh, the expectation of the Libyan is very, very, very high. Then this is without security. Without security, we will not be able to do anything. We need the security as much as we can. Security is priority number one to, to Libya. We need the American companies to come back, but we cannot ask them to come back without the security. Reconciliation among the Libyan people. Just last few days, we still have a great uh, crisis in one of the biggest cities, one of the cities in Libya, which the National Army have to deal with them. This is another challenge. We have to bring the unemployment down. It is more than 30, 35% among the young people. Then this is all the challenge. We managed now to bring the oil just about the level before the revolution. But Libya is depending only on oil and gas. And I think this is not what, what we want. The diversity of our economy is very important. We have to attract the investment. We have to attract the, the foreign companies to invest in Libya. But as I said before, Without security, we will not be able to do that. Reconciliation among our people, it is also a big issue. Libya, it is a big country, but with a small population, with the tribes, with the history, and we need to deal with them. Gaddafi, unfortunately, he used the tribes against, them, against, against each other for his own benefits. Then the challenges are great, but also the promises are great. There are opportunities for the Libyan people to build 
the country. The first thing we achieved is democracy. Now the election took place uh, to elect the first, mem first Congress in the Libyan history since, 19, since 1969. And they have Mr. Uh, Ibrahim Saad, he is one of them. Now he was elected as a member of Congress. Then Libya now, they are enjoying the democracy. And they are enjoying electing the people they want. But this is also is not enough. Uh, the level, the level, the standard of living in Libya is very low. I am working for the government for 42 years. When I retired, my salary will be $400. I think you cannot feed even a dog here in the United States. What about the one with a family to take care of them? Then creating the opportunities is very important. But I am, I am optimistic because the people now... Um, you see that they are stand for their democracy, they are stand for their future. And uh, we, have to, uh, we have to be realistic for our expectation. But the government needs to supply the service. Education is, is need to be reformed. Juridical system, it needs to be reformed. Economy, it needs to be reformed. Everything, we, Gaddafi left for us just destructions. In every Libyan city, you find what Gaddafi left is destruction behind him. Um, I want to, to tell you that we are confident that we will achieve our goals. But we cannot say we achieve our goals just by what I am telling you now. The new government, the new prime minister was elected, and he has to present his government in the next few days. And this, there is a great responsibility for the new for, for this new government. I don't want the United States or our alliance or our friends to leave confidence. To, uh, they want, I want them to be confident in Libyan future. The Libyans are very serious about, about their future. They, they sacrifice more than 25,000 young people and children and women were killed during the eight months of war. Then, um, Again, the Libyan people who stand for Gaddafi, they stand for the terrorists also. We, uh, the one who take, uh, who responsible for the action against the American embassy are not the Libyan people. They are a small group of terrorists. But the Libyan people, they went out to the street, they demonstrate, they show their support democracy, they, support, they show support for their friends, and they are committed to the democracy. We are optimistic that the region which uh, witnessed changes from Tunisia to Libya to Egypt, we will work together for the future for our people, for the future of our nation. And we have to make a lot of changes in Libya, not on the economic level, but also on the political level. Our relations have to be changed. We have more enemies before. We have no enemies at the present time. And then we have to look to how can we use our strategic location, how we use our uh, resources, how we use our history to bring more investment to Libya, to bring more friends to Libya, and, lib and create the Libya that participate in the international community and play a positive role in the world. Thank you very much. Uh, thank, thank you, Mr. Ambassador. Uh, you reminded us uh, that security indeed remains the first priority for Libyans uh, and uh, for those uh, looking to take advantage of the considerable opportunities uh, that ultimately uh, we know uh, the Libyans in cooperation with, with the world uh, will seize. Uh, we'll move now uh, to Dr. Ottaway. Uh, he's well known to all of us uh, for his long years as a foreign correspondent for the Washington Post. Um, he's returned to the Woodrow Wilson Center uh, as a senior scholar, uh, and he's currently preparing a book focused on changes underway uh, in the Arab world. His recent travels and reporting from the region uh, reflect his continued dedication to getting the story firsthand, and we look forward to benefiting from his wise perspective. Dr. Ottaway, thank you. Uh, thank you. Good afternoon. Uh, I was given a list of questions uh, that I might address and asked to talk about Tunisia. And the list, I think John drew it up, was 
far too long for a seven-minute talk, so I, I chose two questions I wanted to address. Uh, the one, first one is, is constitutional reform from the bottom up through coalition politics, as, as is happening in several Arab republics, likely to be more successful and enduring than reform from the top, vastly pre preferred by the Arab monarchies? And the second question related, to what extent do these reforms serve as a possible model for the, for the monarchies, and particularly the Gulf Arab monarchies. Um, now, in thinking about this issue, what first struck me is that the, what's happening in the three monarchies, uh, I mean the three republics I want to talk about today, Tunisia, Egypt, and, and Libya, how different the paths are that each is following. Um, but of the three, I would say that Tunisia has been looked to as the country most likely to succeed, if there is a list like that. Um, as you look at Tunisia, there are um, the way they went about it, the sequencing of re reform steps, is now regarded as a, a successful way to go, to go about this uh, transition. Um, process. Um, they set up uh, a constituent assembly first to write a new constitution, and that body elected an interim government. And the idea they wanted to spell out first what the roles and powers of parliament, president, the government, and the relations among them, and then afterwards hold parliamentary and presidential elections. Neither Egypt nor Libya are following this path. But I think the most interesting thing I discovered in my visits to uh, Tunisia <coughs> was the role played by an institution at the very beginning of the, of the upheaval and transition, the fl flight of uh, Ben Ali, by the high, this is an English translation, the high body for the realization of the objectives of the revolution, political reform, and a democratic transition. That's actually the name of the body. This was an incredibly inclusive group. Um, it was not elected, it was appointed, and it kept getting larger and larger. Uh, and it included everybody from members of the family of Mohammed Bouazizi, the guy who is... Uh, Chaz Freeman said, the spark that started the prairie fire across the Arab world. Members of his family all the way over to Ananda. And with all the parties and, and political groups, I mean, it was really incredibly uh, inclusive. And talking, one of the most interesting things that nobody, I think, very few people realize anyway, is that at the very beginning of the Tunisian revolution, there was an attempt by leftist groups seize control of the process, sort of a leftist coup. And um, this body served to bring other groups than the leftist groups into the, this high body um, and sort of uh, moder moderate the furor and the attempt by these leftist groups to seize control. And I find this a fascinating bit of information that I've never heard discussed by anybody. And I know this all from talking to the head of the, uh, this high body. Uh, but the important thing was that because this high body succeeded and, and prevented a, a leftist seizure of power, um, is that the, the beginning of the transition, there was a civilian body, including everybody, which lasted for 10 months while they got uh, the elections going for constituent assembly. Um, and that stands in really sharp contract to Egypt, where you have a Supreme Council of the Armed Forces, the SCAF, taking over right away. And the whole process is different. So um, you, what's really interesting is different paths uh, that the Tunisia took from the other two. And this was the, the relative success, if you will, uh, it was, was sort of the blessing that Ennada only won 37 percent of the vote, 41 percent of the parliamentary seats out of 217, and they had to form a coalition government with two um, secular parties. 
which really moderated the whole process and forced consensus. Now, um, I won't go into the details of how Libya and Egypt have changed or, or navigating the process because you're hearing it from other people. Um, but the point is there is no Tunisian model replicable even among the other republics that are trying going through this process. So what lessons do we learn from this kind of bottom-up approach of, uh, for the Arab monarchies? Uh, and are there any reforms that might be transferable or that the monarchists think about following? And I think there's one thing that they all share in common, and that is the monarchies and the republicans, uh, the republics, are facing a very similar existential issue. The need for a new social and political compact between rulers and ruled. And they're all going to have to do it. Now, the, the way the republics have gone about it is a very messy, conflictual, got two minutes, um, difficult way of going about it. Um, but I think in the end, they're going to come out with a new compact. And the question is, how are the monarchies going to come out with a new compact, uh, political and social? And what, what institutions or reforms are likely to be, are we likely to see happen or replicated in the monarchies? Um, and it's very clear to me that the shuras, the consultative, non-elected shuras, are slowly becoming, going to become elected parliaments with, with powers of some kind, um, which they don't have now. And that's, I think, is going to be the, the, um, the sort of key similarity in what's going on with republics and monarchs. The other thing the monarchies are going to have to deal with is the withdrawal of the royal families from running the governments. Now, Morocco, and you'll hear more about that shortly, has figured that out a long time ago. Um, but in a number of the monarchies, particularly in the Gulf, the royal families are still trying to run the governments. And particularly in Kuwait now, you see this battle of the, between parliament and, and the royal family about who's going to run, who's gonna, who's, who the government's going to be and who's going to appoint it. Uh, but I think the royal families are going to slowly retreat and the shuras uh, that are appointed and non-elected are, are going to become elected and with some powers. And these are all reforms that you see happening uh, even, in the, even in the republics. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Ottaway. Uh, that, that comparative approach, I think, is, uh, is very helpful, uh, particularly in light of, obviously, the wide concern about developments in the Gulf, but also, uh, you know, what we heard from the last panel about Syria. Um, perhaps uh, Tunisia may not be uh, any more seen as most likely to succeed, uh, but a rules-first approach that's inclusive uh, and reflects uh, the strengths of a bottom-up approach may be uh, replicable elsewhere. Uh, we'll move now... Uh, further west uh, to Algeria. Uh, my colleague Alexis Arieff uh, serves as an analyst uh, for Africa and the Maghreb uh, with me at the Congressional Research Service. Um, her work there focuses on Morocco, Tunisia, and Algeria. Um, and uh, she's actually just returned uh, from a rather path-breaking trip uh, to the Sahel. So she may be able to uh, share some perspective uh, about the regional security concerns affecting the countries of interest to this panel. Uh, Alexis? Thank you, Chris, and, and thanks to the, to the council for this very timely discussion. Um, I've been asked to say a few words about Algeria, and in particular questions of anticipated leadership transitions, uh, political dynamics, and Algeria's role in regional security, which, which Chris touched on. Um, so uh, to begin with, I would say Algeria remains a puzzle. There has been a lot of discussion lately among uh, North Africa watchers about the fact that Algeria's regime has maintained and remained stable despite dramatic change and transition on all sides. This has left Algeria's leaders and even members of the public feeling isolated and at the same time to some degree vindicated uh, as Algerian officials point to violence and uncertainty in Libya, Tunisia, Mali, to justify their general pessimism about regional political transitions 
and Western intervention to topple Gaddafi. Various observers have sought to answer the question of why Algeria has not had its own Arab Spring, given evidently high levels of public dissatisfaction with the government system and leadership. There are undoubtedly several factors at work, including Algerians' memory of uh, the extreme violence of the 1990s, which followed Algeria's own democratic opening in 1988, which which to some degree was mirrored uh, by uprisings more recently in Tunisia, uh, Egypt, and elsewhere. The complexity of the Algerian regime, which lacks uh, a single all-controlling boogeyman figure a la Ben Ali or uh, Gaddafi, the availability of oil revenues to placate dissenters, and the savviness of Algeria's security apparatus, which allows space for free expression and political participation, and which in 2011 avoided excessive use of force in containing uh, public demonstrations and uh, rioting in Algiers. While I think these are all plausible explanations and point to uh, Algerian exceptionalism, as, as their own officials uh, would, would say, um, I also strongly feel that there's a lack of reliable information on the diversity of views that Algerians hold of their government, of their system of government, um, of their history, and of their preferred path forward. The inner workings of Algerian politics, moreover, remain opaque and a constant source of debate and speculation, um, even within politically connected circles in Algiers. So I think that analytic modesty is, is certainly called for. And after all, um, it would have been very plausible to explain away the possibility of popular upheaval in Tunisia in late 2010, for example. Instead, I, I think we might ask, what does instability look like in Algeria? Um, there does not appear to be a sizable appetite among Algerians for mass upheaval, um, popular upheaval. The state, meanwhile, has shown itself able to contain local unrest, has largely dealt with internal insurgency, and is able to subvert or appears able to subvert and co-opt formal opposition. <clears throat> what is it less equipped to deal with, we might ask ourselves. What signs should we be looking for that would suggest or not a coming shift in the status quo? Do any Algerian forces or individuals enjoy sufficient popular credibility that they are in a position to influence events from outside the system? Algeria's leadership is also poised for potentially significant transitions. As Algerians naturally confront the generational shift that is taking place as members of the revolutionary generation, either retire or pass away, having been the dominant force in politics for over half a century. It's no secret that President Abdelaziz Bouteflika is aging and ill and is widely expected not to run again when his term is up in 2014. He could even step down beforehand, and there are sort of persistent rumors to that effect. The battle to succeed him is on among members of the political elite. But the outcome of that battle is, is certainly undetermined, I think, at this point. Most observers expect the military to play some role in the choice of his successor, but the military has been subject to cultural shift over the last decade, and it too is potentially coming up to transitions among its senior ranks. The military chief of staff, General Ahmed Gaid Salah, uh, is in his 80s, while the mysterious and powerful head of military intelligence, the DRS, uh, General Mohamed Tufik Medien is in his 70s and is also rumored to be ill. Given the pace of events in the region over the last 18 months, we should ask ourselves if we are able to continue to expect that past practices will hold in the future, and also to interrogate our own assumptions of regime strength and capacity. Um, to transition a bit to, to regional security, um, as Chris mentioned, I, I was in West Africa last week, including in Bamako, uh, and I would note that there is immense speculation and uncertainty in the region regarding Algeria's stance toward the political security crisis in Mali. Um, Algeria's leaders, consumed as they are with internal jostling for position and related parochial interests, domestic security issues, and a general suspicion of Western motivations with regard to Mali and Libya and elsewhere, they have not articulated a clear approach to northern Mali, where Al-Qaeda and the Islamic Maghreb and two associated insurgent groups 
are now active within a territory roughly the size of France that lies just uh, across the border from Algeria. Algerian officials have uh, emitted conflicting signals as to their stance toward a proposed regional military intervention in northern Mali, which not incidentally is supported by France and Morocco. Factors such as the opacity of Algerian high-level decision-making, the potential for competing interests within the upper reaches uh, and the inner circles of government authority, as well as the current focus among Algeria's political class on domestic succession issues, are acting as a hindrance to Algeria's own efforts over the past decade to position itself as a leader on regional security issues and counterterrorism. Algeria has reinforced security among, uh, along its border with Mali, which actually started in 2012, in early 2012, following a terrorist attack uh, in the southern garrison town of Tamanrasset, but has not been able to leverage prior arrangements on shared security in the Sahel to its political advantage. There is hope in some quarters in the region, as well as in Washington and Paris, that Algeria could be induced to play a constructive role in this anticipated military intervention should it materialize. However, officials and observers within the Sahel region are also skeptical as to Algeria's motives uh, and, in, and interests and intentions. Um, I'll leave it at that, and perhaps we can touch on some of this in the Q&A. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much, Alexis. You helped us uh, understand perhaps the dog that didn't bark, um, and, and perhaps uh, gave us a framework for understanding w whether that'll be true in the future. Uh, and you laid out really an uncertain path ahead and helped illuminate the interrelation between uh, Algerian domestic politics and regional security concerns. Uh, we'll uh, we'll wrap our panel here with uh, with two overviews. Um, the first uh, provided by Dr. Paul Sullivan, uh, who also joined us uh, for the last panel. Um, Dr. Sullivan is going to give us uh, a, an economic sort of uh, tour de horizon uh, of the region and help us understand some of the sparks that, that help drive change and, and may yet derail it. Dr. Sullivan. Well, I'm not sure I would agree that that uh, dog may not bark uh, sometime in the future. Algeria had its problems in the early 90s. Uh, Morocco has great unemployment. One of the issues that all of these countries face is significant unemployment and the declining hopes of the youth. Uh, Karim said these things take time. Yes, they do. But I have great concern that the youth and many other people in these countries do not have patience for the time to let this work out. A paper I'll be writing based on this is called The Race Against Time, <clears throat> North African Economies. Before I give my talks just about anywhere, I have to give a caveat. These are my opinions alone. Do not represent those of the United States government or any other organization I might be part of. Uh, therefore, now I can be a troublemaker. <laughs> I'm going to focus mostly on the post-revolutionary, post-dictatorship countries of Egypt, Libya, and Tunisia. I will focus more on Egypt because I spent 20 years looking at the country, lived there for six years, and was there for six weeks during the summertime. Algeria and Morocco have been peaceful, but don't count on it. Algeria and Libya are net oil exporters and gas exporters. That can help them get back onto their feet if they do not focus too much on that. Uh, as the ambassador said, Libya is back to 1.4 million barrels a day. It's almost miraculous given the history of many countries that have gone through things like this. Algeria produces about the same amount of oil as Libya, but it has about six times the people. So there's a lot more people to spread that across. Algeria produces about 3 trillion cubic feet of gas per year, Egypt, uh, Libya about 600. If you do the math, it's pretty clear about the equivalent billion cubic feet per person in both countries. And if everything were distributed nicely, everyone would be well off. But I think we both know that's not the way it is. Egypt is a net oil importer. It is a gas exporter, but right now mostly LNG because the pipelines aren't exactly secure these days. And the pipeline to Israel has been shut. Most of Egypt's Natural gas goes to the demands of its 86 and growing million people. And it's a growing demand for natural gas because there are massive subsidies in the use of natural gas, which has made this situation unsustainable. 
Tunisia and Morocco are net energy importers, so they get hit with the increasing price of oil as well as the increasing price of natural gas in the region. Unlike in the United States, natural gas in the region is going up. All of these countries rely on energy subsidies, which are unsustainable in their budgets. They are frying their budgets on this, and the IMF has actually asked Egypt to control this. And if you take a look into the history of subsidies of Egypt, whenever the IMF has asked them to take subsidies off, there have been problems. 77, 87, you name it. There is a chance for the United States to possibly advise on targeted subsidies for energy. But then again, when we think about it, are we really good at that ourselves? Not really. If these subsidies are taken off in an awkward fashion or too quickly, there will be trouble in the streets. Much like the subsidies on bread or anything else, it's a pocketbook issue. The revolutions were in many ways pocketbook issues. Unemployment, shortages of bread. Remember the bread riots just before this whole thing started? And Mr. Boaziz, what was his problem? Unemployment in a dreadful economic situation for most of the youth. Even though many people may say that the macroeconomies of some of these countries are doing well, macroeconomies do not point to the life of the youth. It's the microeconomics of desperation. Walk around Shubra, Saeeda Zainab in Cairo, or the poor parts of Algiers, and you will see what I'm talking about. A person who drove us to the airport, someone we've known for many years in Cairo, was in tears. No work. No work for him. No work for his son. No work for his cousin. Egypt is trying to get back onto his feet, as these other countries are, after dictators that failed and failed again. And then they got hit with the revolutionary economics that most countries get hit with. There was a great deal of hope amongst the people in Egypt, Tunisia, and Libya that their economies will get back on their feet after this. Well, that's really not the way revolutions work historically. Usually there are difficult times and they last for a long time. Almost all of these countries need great economic reforms and deep, long-lasting economic reforms. I've been trying to listen to what President Morsi and others are saying about economic reforms, and all I hear is confused ideology. And what I have seen is nothing. No reform, no change, no action, and unemployment is getting worse, and the kids are probably feeling less hopeful than even prior to the revolution. Tourism is down. Of course, some of the statements of the leadership of Egypt have not helped in that country. Suez Canal revenues are doing pretty well. I spent some time watching ships going through the Suez Canal. Inflation officially is okay, but this is not what I saw in the six weeks that I was in Egypt. There are huge pressures on the currencies of these states, most particularly the Egyptian pound. Reserves in Egypt have dropped to one-third of what they were before the revolution. Potential food shocks are being taken care of by importing increasingly expensive food, wheat, and so forth. Again, hitting the budgets further by importing expensive food and then subsidizing it. The food economics and pretty much the entire economics at the microeconomic scale in countries such as Egypt and Tunisia are unsustainable. You can get money from the IMF, the World Bank, the Americans, the EU, the Chinese, and the Russians, but the system needs to change to make this sustainable. Some villages have significant water problems. When I was in the countryside this summer in Egypt, Six to eight hours of electricity was about all you got. Then, of course, there's the traffic of Cairo, which the president said at one time he could cure within 100 days. I'm not sure how that's going to work. It needs investment in infrastructure, energy, water, transport, and more. 
what these countries need more than anything else is not for the Americans to teach them about governance or to be school marmish about how to run countries. They need clinics. They need improvements in their health system. They need jobs. They need roads. They need education. They need investment that produces not jobs, not just buying land or buying up old factories to knock them down to turn them into apartment complexes. There's a great deal of opportunity for the United States and others to help these countries. But they have to focus on the real problems, not the problems that they think are the problems. Thank you. Thank you, uh, thank you, Dr. Sullivan, uh, for uh, you know helping us be aware of, of some of the red flags ahead, uh, understanding the resources that the different countries have to bring to bear uh, to meet uh, the considerable constraints and challenges they face, and also outlining an agenda for the future. Uh, for our, our commentator uh, on this panel, uh, sort of another overview, uh, Dr. Najib Ayachi uh, will be speaking. Um, he's the founder and president of the Maghreb Center, uh, known to many of you. Um, really the only American think tank uh, that's exclusively focused on, on North Africa. Um, his experience as a development specialist, uh, but also his region-wide expertise will make him, uh, you know, they make him well qualified to serve as the commentator today. So uh, please welcome uh, Dr. Ayachi. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Anthony, for the Setting the, putting this together, this great event. Thank you for the invitation and for uh, uh, allowing me to comment on the various presentations. Um, I would like to uh, say a few things about the, um, one of the questions posed by uh, Dr. Anthony was, was, is there a model that we can follow? Can Morocco be a model also for other monarchies? But. <clears throat> Tunisia, can Tunisia also be a model? Can we follow that model? And <clears throat> I would like to look at Tunisia in comparison to Egypt, for example. And um, because there are several, quite a few similarities with the, um, you mentioned, uh, uh, Karim, the uh, resilience of state institutions in spite of the revolution. You, you have the same thing in Tunisia. The, the state, state institutions, state agency have survived they've, and they've performed the usual uh, service delivery uh, function, uh, water, electricity, etc. So the school system was working more or less, the education system, I meant to say, uh, the health system as well, etc. So we owe that to the, I believe, the forced, uh, we're dealing with two nation states, I think one of the few nation states in, in the Arab world. They have a long, there's a long history of state formation in Tunisia and Egypt. It goes back to the 19th century with the reformists at that time. In both cases also the Islamists are in power. <laughs> in Tunisia we have ANADA which uh, got there through a process very aptly described by Dr. Ottaway in, uh, in, in, Egy in Egypt as well. Uh, you pointed out at uh, uh, Dr. Uh, Karim, you, you said that there's a little change in Egypt in fact. They, I'm under the impression that it's the same in Tunisia as well especially on the economic front. There is no, uh, they came to power in Tunisia with an agenda, basically, to, uh, they didn't participate in the revolution, they didn't lead it. Uh, some people say they have hijacked the revolution. Well, they've been elected anyway, so. And they formed this coalition government with two secular parties. But uh, they tried to, um, um, inject as much as possible uh, Sharia law in the Constitution, but they couldn't. They were they were opposed by by very by uh, uh, various groups, including in particular women groups. Women were mobilized against the Islamists in Tunisia. Thank God. <laughs> um, and they did. They wanted to integrate Sharia law, uh, Sharia in the Constitution. They had to give up on that uh, to uh, criminalize. Uh, uh, um, to criminalize um, formalization. Yeah, to criminalize the, uh, the, the, the insulting religion, let's say. And, and it didn't work. Sorry, I, I forgot the, the term for that. Etc., uh, etc. Et but they, they haven't done much since then. 
And I think we should, they certainly didn't address the economic challenges that they were supposed to uh, in Tunisia, and, and neither in, in, in Egypt. Uh, to me, there is a, the Arab Spring is also the outcome of a failed economic development uh, 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 model. <clears throat> One that has been suggested by, yes, the IMF, the World Bank, the US as well, and other major, and other donors, basically, and other, um, th that uh, what, uh, what is needed now is a new economic development model uh, that is more inclusive, that provides jobs to this uh, millions, literally, of uh, young people who are unemployed. Many of them have even college degrees. They don't, they, they don't, have, they don't find jobs. Uh, I have uh, looked a little bit at what could be done in Egypt, for example, to, in terms of, uh, of inclusive development in the agri agricultural sector. Why not? Let me, let me talk to you about this very briefly, about my um, uh, Egypt economy is, of course, as you know, badly suffering from unemployment. It's on the rise. Uh, according to the IMF projection, the Egyptian economy, which has a real GDP growth rate of 5% in 2009-2010, is projected to only grow growth rates of 1-2% uh, in 2011, which is very bad. Uh, because of this economic slowdown, as well as the return uh, of Egyptian migrants from Libya, unemployment one of the main reasons of the Egyptian, for the Egyptian revolution that took place in early 2011 is on the rise. So to keep pace with democratic, uh, demographic trends, Egypt needs to create at least 700,000 new jobs, new productive and sustainable jobs every year. Uh, with respect to geography, some of the poorest Egyptians live in rural area, concentrated in rural upper southern Egypt, while around 56% of Egyptians live in rural areas, more than 78% of Egypt's poor and 80% of its extremely poor live there. The situation is particularly acute in Upper Egypt, where 95% of Egypt's poorest villages are located. So here, uh, this is why I mentioned the uh, agricultural sector that can be, uh, that can be uh, used to uh, create jobs. However, uh, the rural economy at large and the agricultural, agricultural sector, indeed, in particular, have a strong potential to provide an inclusive development model. We, we could, um, agriculture is estimated to comprise at least 32% of the country's total labor force, and uh, at least 14% of the total GDP. Not only does this sector include some of the poorest in its value chains, but it also provides opportunities for otherwise marginalized groups, such as women. The agricultural sector in Egypt is one where women have a participation rate of 35%, compared to a national workforce average of only 24%. So, supporting what some economists call social entrepreneurship mm. and inclusive business models, that's what I recommend, would recommend, could be a strong vehicle for job creation and poverty alleviation, as well as rural development. Given the failure of existing mechanisms provided by the market and only by the market, and the current state of solutions to remedy this failure, another mechanism is undoubtedly needed. One that, lasts, uh, that tests new ideas and also invests in existing models that work a little bit, and that have proven effective, uh, in order to increase their impact. Why, uh, why not um, thinking about launching, creating some kind of a special fund for youth, em youth employment to which oil-rich countries could contribute, some oil companies, the main ones, <laughs> in order to uh, alleviate unemployment, in, in especially in the non-oil-producing countries like e Egypt primarily, Tunisia and Morocco. And in that case, they could, they could help, they could contribute to setting, uh, help this, there are many, this businesses to be set up uh, that can be integrated back to Egypt and to the agric agriculture sector in the agriculture supply chains, such as those in the food processing, agricultural waste management, handicrafts, and other domains. So this is uh, my suggestion, <laughs> very brief one. Uh, about on how to alleviate this uh, um, the, the, the tremendous, the, the, the awful issue of uh, youth unemployment, especially uh, 
those young people who have college degrees uh, and don't have jobs, uh, then, you know, to create a business, we need startup money. And this fund I was talking about can also contribute yes. to financially and technically, providing also the, the technical know-how to set up a business and run it, in addition to a little bit of money to, to start it. Uh, you wanted me to say a few things about Morocco. I think maybe Do we'll we have a few minutes? I think we'll keep that for maybe another time. Okay, the Q and A about Morocco, which has uh, Morocco, which has not been addressed. But I really wanted to to stress the economic causes of the Arab Spring that should be dealt with. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Ayachi. Uh, so we'll turn now to uh, the questions from the panel and, and a few of uh, perhaps of Dr. Anthony's how questions. Um, uh, the first question is for uh, Ambassador uh, Ojali. Um, we, we've heard a lot this afternoon about um, challenges facing uh, Arab youth. Um, what specific agenda items do you believe uh, are or ought to be on uh, the new cabinet's agenda? Uh, for helping Libyan youth uh, seize the opportunities the revolution has presented? Well, I think can you imagine in a country producing 1.6 uh, million of uh, crude oil, you know, and uh, of a population less than 7 million uh, people, that the unemployment is 30 percent? Uh, this is a very serious issue. Uh, this is the one of the main issues for the new government to handle. Uh, we need a lot of training, we need a lot of opportunities. We need to create, beside uh, the oil, another national uh, resources. I think we have uh, potentials to be a, a, a very important uh, country in the field of uh, tourism. It is a great industry. We have 2,000 uh, kilometers of the beautiful warm water of the Mediterranean. And uh, the main other issue is education. I think the education is uh, in the last four, four decades was one of the other, uh, beside others, that was really destroyed. And we need a lot of training. We need to create opportunities among the people to give them more chance and more education. We have here about 1,700 students. And we have in Europe another few thousand. But I think we need to give them more training, not only the students, but also in the government departments. Then the main thing I believe beside the, the oil industry, beside, I think tourism is a, is a good opportunity to, 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 to create more, more jobs for the, for the young people. But before we do that, we have to bring them a comprehensive training in every, in every field. Thank you, Mr. Ambassador. Um, Dr. Sullivan, how would you assess uh, the European and U.S. response to the economic challenges? Do you think that there's a coherent, cooperative policy that's been put forward, and if not, uh, what would you prescribe? No. There is no uh, coordinated policy uh, or comprehensive or even understandable, it seems. Uh, things are still trying to be worked out, and of course there are some uh, questions here in the U.S. about where some of these countries might be going, considering some of the comments by some of the leadership and some of the internal uh, activities, such as the violence on September 11th, uh, attacking of our embassy in Cairo and so forth, threw off uh, a lot of people uh, in this country to think about how to help Egypt. There was a large delegation of business people looking to invest in Egypt at that time. The timing could not have been worse. Is it important for the United States to invest in Egypt? for the private sector to invest in Egypt, for the government to invest in learning about Egypt? Absolutely yes. Is it important for the United States government to help Libya develop with the education that the ambassador mentioned, in the clinics, in the investment, in the roads, in the alternative industries? Absolutely crucial to do this. We need to focus on this. It could help to have coalitions with the Europeans, but the Europeans are in a somewhat parlous situation right now. We need to keep an eye on the ball here. We may be in a moment of debt and deficit in this country, but with the natural gas and oil mentioned earlier today, all of this could be resolved. We are coming back. 
as a country. This whole business is over with in six to eight years if we do the right thing. We need to keep in play. Our private sector needs to keep in play. If we don't, we are going to lose big time. And my sense is, in the intermediate period where the government can't do all this, the private sector needs to step in and the government needs to help them step in. Thank, thank you for that. <laughs> okay, so uh, we, we only have a very few minutes left. Uh, we're standing between you and a very nice reception. Uh, so <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll ask uh, both Dr. Ayachi and perhaps uh, Alexis, um, how durable do you believe that the, the bargain, the sort of negotiated change model uh, that Morocco is currently uh, undergoing or, or experimenting with is? Uh, and what obstacles or red flags do you see uh, on the road ahead for Morocco? Thank you. <laughs> Go ahead. I think it's, um, I, I would, Make is it, it on? Closer, yeah. hmm? Yes. You know, this, it's the, the same issue. I'm going to repeat it. <laughs> it's, it will, it's tied to um, economic development, it's, uh, to, to economic recovery, to economic development, to job creations. And, and, and apparently, uh, Morocco is going through an, an economic crisis. Its main partner is Europe, as you know. So they trade a lot with, uh, with, with, uh, with Europe. Europe is in crisis, so there's less trade with them. So uh, Morocco economically doesn't, uh, is hampered by that. Um, the, the, recently the King of Morocco went on a tour to the CGC, to the, to the Gulf countries, to seek funding from Qatar, from Saudi Arabia, from other Gulf states. Apparently he was able to secure some funding, but unfortunately most of this funding goes to tourism, uh, perhaps to a certain extent infrastructure and is and real estate. It's, it's mostly speculative. It's not productive. <laughs> Little money is invested in creating jobs. As again, a new, another development model that should be endogenous. The Moroccans should be able to devise it themselves. A democratic Morocco with everyone involved, everyone on board, you know, at the local level, people, people can, can, with the help of experts like myself, <laughs> <laughs> now, can divide their own economic development model that is regionally, locally grounded, and I think that would be the, the solution. But Morocco is is in a relatively difficult situation now because of that. So, Alexis, a difficult situation with economics as the determining factor. I mean, I I, I agree with that with that analysis. I I think on a political level, there's also um, the question of of how far uh, the current situation. Um, can be extended, where you have a sort of fundamental ambiguity about who is responsible for major uh, decision making at the, at the at the top of the state. Um, is it is it the monarchy? Is it the the PJD led coalition government? Um, is it sort of third parties who don't hold uh, formal positions? Um, and I think that right now you see a situation where the Moroccan public is willing to sort of give the benefit of the doubt to both the monarchy and to the PJD. Uh, you know, who who both have quite a bit of. Um, who, who both benefit from, from quite a bit of public goodwill. Uh, on the other hand, you know, as these economic challenges uh, persist and as the political situation remains ambiguous, I think we can wonder sort of what's, what lies down the road. Thank you very much. Well, that brings our panel to a close. Uh, I'd like to thank, uh, ask you to join me in thanking our, our, our panel, our speakers.